Good evening and welcome to another episode of Audie's Oddities. As always, my name is Audie and I'm here to tell you about the scary and spooky shit happening in our world. I am jumping right into today's episode because I want to just go ahead and talk about this. This shit's crazy. So what if I told you that two women were murdered in the same town within 72 hours of each other? You're probably thinking a serial killer or something like that, right? Well, what if I told you that both the women looked extremely similar and also had the same name? Not just the first name, the same first and last name. Oh yeah, and they drove the same model of car. I'm gonna stop spoiling it. Let's get into the details. I cannot believe I have never heard of this case before. So if you've heard of this case before, please let me know because I don't know how I missed this. We're in Houston, Texas, October 12th of 2000. While a man was out on his morning jog, he found a car in flames parked on the street in front of the neighborhood houses. Inside of this car was a burned body that was beyond recognition. The police traced the car back to a 48-year-old woman named Mary Morris. She lived about three miles away, but hadn't been seen by her husband, Jay Morris, for nearly 24 hours before this body was found. After Jay Morris had quickly realized that Mary hadn't shown up to work that day, he hadn't heard from her in 24 hours, which was very unlike her, they quickly discovered that this body did belong to Mary Morris. And unfortunately, Mary's body was burned so badly that the cause of death was determined too difficult to figure out. And what makes it so sad is on the news, they were talking about this car being up in flames and Jay and his adult daughter, Marilyn, were freaking out because they had the worst feeling that it was going to be Mary. These two literally drove to the scene of the crime pretty much as it was happening. Let's talk about a couple of the odd things within this case. For starters, the car was parked on the road, you know, like outside the neighborhood houses, but it was parked in the wrong direction, almost as if someone pulled in in a hurry and just left it like that. Another odd thing is that even though this car was on fire about three miles from where Jay and Mary were living, Jay pretty much knew exactly where the car was. Marilyn, the daughter, was driving the car, but Jay kept telling her to take these back roads despite the radio and news saying that it was happening on a main highway. And another suspicious thing is that quickly after the murder, Marilyn and Jay, who was her stepfather, drifted apart really quickly and apparently no longer speak to this day. So we're going to put Mary Morris on the back burner for a minute and we're going to talk about another Mary. Three days later, on October 16th, a second car is found with another burned victim inside of it. The victim found inside the car is 39-year-old Mary McGinnons Morris. So we're going to refer to her as Mary McGinnons for the sake of keeping the two Marys separate. But yes, that is right. We have two Mary Morrises here. And the ladies had eerily similar appearances. So obviously, the police are thinking that this is connected. I mean... How often do you have two cars with pretty much same woman burned in almost the same neighborhood because this other car was found just a couple miles away? So we get the whole classic, both women were very loved and without enemy. Well, um, except Mary McGinnons. See, Mary McGinnons was a nurse and she had recently started working with another male nurse and apparently this guy did not like her. 
And she had voiced to one of her friends, Lauren Gimmel, that she was scared of him. And she said, and I quote, she was afraid he would hurt her. So late one night, I believe one or two days before this murder took place, Lori went to Mary's office to pick up some papers. And she noticed that some of the things in her office were out of place, such as picture frames being turned down and items moved around for apparently no reason. Oh yeah, and I forgot that written all over her desk in huge letters was death to her. Which, you know, isn't scary at all when Mary is found the next day burned alive in a car. So police immediately assume this is some kind of death threat, right? But we'll get to that a little later. Let's talk a little bit more about the day Mary McGinnons was murdered. We learn from Mary McGinnon's husband, Mike, that he had talked to her only the day before. When he was on the way home from work, she had called him and sounded very shaken up. On this phone call when she was on the way home, she asked Mike if when she arrived home, he would show her how to use one of the guns in the house. So as soon as she pulls in the driveway, she walks in and Mike hands her a gun. They go over how to use it and then she asks Mike to go and place it under the seat of her car. So Mike thinks nothing of it, just assumes she wants some kind of protection and places the gun under the driver's seat of her car. A few weeks later, Lori needed to get her annual flu shot and said, hey Mary, you're just a nurse. Can I just come by and you do it for me? Thanks. So as Lori was leaving their appointment, Mary said she had a few more hours of work and then would head home. A few hours later into the night, Lori would get a call from Mary panicked in a drugstore. Mary was talking about some guy giving her the creeps and saying, I'm just going to run across the bridge, turn off my computer at work, sign out of the building and go home. And according to phone records, only 12 minutes after she hung up with Lori, she called 911. While walking back from the drugstore to her office, she calls 911 where you can hear her being brutally attacked. The medical examiner's report shows that Mary was beaten and then shot directly in her head. The medical examiner also said that it seems like the murderer tried to make it look like a suicide by placing Mary into the car and setting it on fire. Fortunately, the murderer left blood on the passenger side door with the keys outside of the car, something that definitely wouldn't happen with a suicide. So now they're looking back at that death threat in her office that I mentioned before, and they're looking into that creepy male nurse who, keep in mind, had just quit after trying to discredit Mary to the board. And at one time, the police did claim that they had evidence linking him. While they're investigating this male nurse, they're also investigating Mary's husband, Mike. He seems a little suspicious and immediately asks for a lawyer. Look, dude, I get it, but also your wife was just murdered. Mike immediately refused a polygraph and claimed that he was on medications that could possibly alter his results. Now, I'm not familiar with any medication that would do that, but if you are, please let me know because um, maybe that's some good information to know. I don't really think that polygraphs are all that accurate nowadays, or maybe ever, but it's still a little suspicious when you don't want to take one. This is when we learned that Mike and Mary were on a rocky part of their marriage, and he accused her of having an affair with one of his friends. Oh, also, of course, whenever someone is murdered, guess how much their life insurance was for? $700,000! And only two hours before her death, Mike had called her and they had a four-minute phone conversation. The only thing is, Mike claims that they never talked. Mike claims that the phone call never actually went through and it continued ringing for four minutes and he just waited just because. The problem with that, though, is that the cellular service wouldn't have picked up the phone unless it was picked up. Of course, Mike says, and I quote, 
Normally, the cellular service would have kicked in and said that the party you were calling was unavailable. I didn't get that. I don't know why I didn't get that. But as long as the phone was ringing and I thought there was a possibility that she would answer it, I let it ring. For four minutes, dog. Really? No way. So the theory here is that whoever was murdering her picked up her phone and possibly talked to Mike. Why? Because maybe this was a hitman. Hey, you know how I'm here to tell you about the spooky and scary shit happening in our world? Well, I'm here to tell you about something happening right now. Do you love Halloween? I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you have to, right? Well, have you ever wished that there was another time to celebrate that fun and spooky time of year other than October? Well, if you live in the Athens, Georgia area, now you can! Hauntfest is a Halloween slash horror festival business that celebrates Halloween in the spring rather than the fall. So you can get two times as spooky twice a year. The next festival is coming up super soon, April 6th and 7th, and it's going to include some awesome spooky activities. So if you like hay rides, freak shows, fire breathing, live music, trivia, pumpkin painting, animal encounters, a haunted trail, and much more, make sure that you come out April 6th and 7th to the Southern Brewing Company in Athens, Georgia. The festival will also be hosting an array of horror and Halloween-themed vendors, offering things like antiques, tarot readings, original horror literature, macrame artwork, jewelry, and oh yeah, I'll be there. That's right, if you want to come hang out with me, I will be there selling some of my artwork along with all of the other spooky people. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity for only $15 today when you order pre-sale tickets. For ticket purchases, inquiries, and more info, please visit www.hauntfest.us. And don't forget to follow hauntfest.athens on Instagram for all of the updates about the festival. This year's slogan is, who cares about April Fools when you can go to April Ghouls? So think about it. What if Mike hired a hitman for his wife or somebody else hired a hitman for her for whatever reason and the hitman got the wrong person first? According to Lori Gimmel, who was the best friend of Mary McGinnon's, she claims that a call was made to the Houston Chronicles saying that they killed the wrong Mary by a mistake and quickly hung up. But I couldn't find any other sources that could confirm this. Another nod to this possibly being a hitman is the fact that Mary Morris's wedding ring was taken before she was put into the car. And it's a common practice for hitmans to take something like a wedding ring to prove that they killed them. Another nod would be why did Mike have to place the gun underneath her seat for her? Possibly so that the hitman would know exactly where that gun was and give a reason to why Mike's prints would be on the gun in the first place. Because think about it, if you are someone who wants to have a gun underneath your seat or in your car or whatever, wouldn't you want to place it so you know exactly where it is? Also, they're at the time, I believe, 17 or 18 year old child, you know, almost an adult. Mike refused to allow the police to interview or question her, even though Mike's alibi was that he was at the movies with his daughter. And without the daughter's alibi, there's absolutely nothing to support that. No record of them going to a movie, getting a movie ticket, hell, even taking the gas out of the car to get there. So years later, the police just claimed that the murders were just a bizarre coincidence. 
Of course, Mary Morris's husband, Jay Morris, does not believe that's possible. Neither do I. But according to police, the male nurse co-worker and Mike Morris are both still strong suspects in the case. So I'm pretty set in stone that Mary McGinnon's was a hitman case considering all the evidence against Mike and the 911 call. But that still leaves the question of Mary Morris, who was murdered first. So one of the theories is that it was a complete accident. One reason to believe this is that the fire department never investigated the flames. In fact, it turns out that by the time the runner found the car, all of the flames had gone down and it was just ash. So police never even called the fire department. So police investigated the flames themselves, so they had no real way of finding a true accelerant. Another problem that came up a lot was that both women having the same name and similar appearances, and unfortunately being murdered only miles apart from each other, both of their bodies ended up in the same morgue, meaning both of them got mixed up a lot. To the point that maybe the wedding ring that was taken off of the second woman and not the first woman which would add more to the hitman theory that the wedding ring was taken from Mary McGinnon's and not Mary Morris, especially considering that only a few months after Mary McGinnon's death, her daughter was seen wearing the wedding ring and her father just claimed that he found it somewhere. Did you find it, Mike, or did the hitman hand it to you after he brutally murdered your wife? The third theory is that the first Mary, Mary Morris, was intended to be killed and the second Mary was to throw everybody off the tracks. Now, I know what you're thinking. Audie, we already have this huge case against Mike. Isn't it Mike? Can't it just be Mike? It's the hitman. Come on. Now, just hold on. Get your panties out of a wad, as my mama used to say. We'll get there. So six months after their murders, Jay Morris received a $2,000 bill from his wife's missing phone card. Now listen, I know some of you are young and you don't understand what a phone card is, let me tell you. When we had that thing called a landline and not a cell phone, when you wanted to call out of state, you had to use something called a phone card to pay to call that person. So when they tracked down this phone card, a 16-year-old girl had it. This 16-year-old girl claims that she found this card along with a purse on a park bench outside of a convenience store a month earlier. The purse that this phone card was inside of, none of Mary's family recognized. And apparently around the same time that the phone card was found, Jay was receiving phone calls asking for Mary as if she hadn't been dead for five months. So remember how I was saying that the police investigated the accelerant and not a fire department like they should have? Well, that means that we never truly got the cause of an accelerant. But what we believe it was, was horse manure. I had no idea this was flammable. Apparently it is. I guess good to know, but the reason that we care about this is because Mary Morris had a huge thing of horse manure for her garden. So it's likely that the murderer used her own supply to light up this car. So years later, once the internet started becoming a thing and internet sleuths started investigating this case, everyone tried to track down this creepy male nurse. Apparently, this guy's name is Dwayne, and he came forward and claims that him and Mary were actually friends. He said that they would go on business trips together and that he left on his own accord from the business and had no idea about the death threat that was in her office. Now, he does say that he did try to get her discredited. 
He claims that she was faking doctor's reports and he took it up to the company, but they didn't want to do anything, so he left. And after that, they had no contact. So who left the death threat? Possibly the hitman. But another weird thing is that Lori claims that when she was on the phone with Mary, that Mary recognized one of the men as Dwayne's friends. But I don't really know who to believe here because Lori's telling us this, but Lori was also the person that claims that somebody called the newspaper saying that they killed the wrong Mary. But after contacting a bunch of workers at the newspaper at the time, they confirmed that there was never a call made. So why did Lori say this and why did she claim that it was true? Also something odd is that Mary was found on a back road only five minutes from Lori's house, but Lori had no idea where the road was and was completely unfamiliar with it. Now, I understand that there are some people that have no idea how to get to their house. They know one route or they always use their GPS. I totally get that there are people like that, but Lori had lived here for a long time and I believe had taken this road to go to work or something, so she definitely would have known it. And to this day, this case has never been solved. This case is still open. They still have no idea what happened and both of the families are still searching for peace. If you guys know anything else about this, please, please share. You know that I love coming back in later episodes and just adding little details that I found out later on. And I feel like this could possibly be one of them just because of the amount of research I had to do. I feel like I must have missed something. Thank you so much for hanging out with me, you guys. It feels so, so good to be back. I'm so excited for the next episode. Thank you so much for keeping with me. As always, my name is Audie and this has been Audie's Oddities. Audities.